And Paul, he writes a warning to those who desire to be rich. For in doing so, they fall into temptation, and he uses the language of a snare. They fall into a trap that will get them and will hurt them. See, the problem is when we pursue wealth as our goal, if wealth is the, the end all, that's the thing we need, you will never have enough and you will always be afraid of losing it. Always. Hi, this is Chris from The Point, a church where you can come as you are and you can text in your questions. You may not be sure what you believe about God, Jesus, faith, or the Bible, and that's okay, because faith is not about having it all figured out, and God is not waiting for you to put your life together before He'll connect with you. If you'd like to find out more about The Point, you can visit our website at thepointknox.com or connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at The Point Knox. Don't hesitate to contact us or join us in person every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. We pray this message has an impact in your life or at least makes it easy for you to connect with God where you are. Once again, good morning. For those of you who have not had the opportunity to join us these last several weeks, we have been discussing together a practice of faith. And that language can be really confusing, so I just want to take a moment to reiterate what we mean. You and I as Christians, those who have been redeemed and saved by Christ, are a work in progress. God is actively working in you and in me to transform the things that are broken and sinful into something new. And we believe the life of faith is not just simply intellectual assent we know of God, but is learning through daily habits and practices to actually walk with God, to live out each day with the presence of God, with Jesus himself, to seek him and learn from him. And we believe that as we practice things that help us be with him, like our previous practice of silence and solitude, as we practice things that help us be, be with him, we then begin to become like him. And ultimately, the more like him we become, the more we do the types of things he did. And so as Christians, our life should be one of perpetual growth. And I don't mean perpetual growth means you never go backwards. In fact, if you're trying to work out and get strong, you have to have rest days or else you will break something. You have to have days where you slow down and you're not pushing as hard in order to see the growth you want to have. Our journey with Jesus is one in which we are growing, and some days we look more like him than others. And other days, we have to repent for the things we did that maybe we should not have done. And so this practice of simplicity that we have been discussing is an invitation. You can be Christian and never once consider this practice, okay? This does not affect how much Jesus loves you. It does not change how mature or responsible or wonderful you are. It doesn't change any of that. What it can do is free up space in your daily life to begin to not only experience Jesus every day, but to begin to live like him in the things you're doing. And so this practice of simplicity, we began with the reality that we live in a media-driven advertising world. 
There is a propaganda around us, and this is not conspiracy. It's just fact that there are billions of dollars spent every single year to convince you that you are inadequate unless you buy the right product, have the right stuff, live in the right place, fill your life with the right things, do more and more and more. And this propaganda of more that comes against us can easily not only distract us, but discourage us and fill us with all kinds of anxiety and worry. What if the more that I have today is not enough tomorrow? What if the things that I have disappear? Then what? And so this practice of simplicity, we began not with our stuff or with our money. No, simplicity begins much earlier than that. Simplifying our heart. What are the things we value most? Are we actually aware of what we care the most about? And in turn, does our life reflect those things? Oftentimes, in the busyness and the hurriedness and the more, 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 we unintentionally chase things that don't actually match our intended desire. For example, if family is the most important thing to you, but you're working 75 or 80 hours a week to provide for that family and you're never with them, maybe that work is actually pulling you away from the more important thing. So first we began with our hearts, and then we considered our practices of pleasure. How do we enjoy this world? You see, God has made all sorts of really good things for us to enjoy, but far too often we enjoy them in great excess. Like we don't just watch one show on Netflix, we watch the whole season in one night. And then we're worn out the next day because we stayed up too late. And we're tired and we're exhausted and we don't even remember the stuff we loved about that show. The same could be true with food or with drink or with a whole host of things we do in excess. So to begin to be like Jesus, we simplify those things by purposefully saying no to some things or some quantities by limiting how much we indulge in pleasure so that we can become like Jesus and really deeply and truly enjoy what he gives us. And then Vicar Adam shared about our need to simplify our speech. See, sometimes to be like Jesus, we should simply not talk at all. Anybody in here really good at talking too much and opening your mouth and inserting your foot and going, oh, I should not have said that. Sometimes to be like Jesus, we learn to talk less. And other times we need to learn to speak up for the right things, to speak up against injustice, to speak up for our brother or sister who's oppressed and experiencing all kinds of hardship that isn't due to them. Sometimes we need to use our voice when it's difficult or uncomfortable or could have consequences we're not ready for. And so simplifying our speech is beginning to learn when do I speak and when do I remain silent? And last week, we talked about simplifying our clothing. We looked at Luke chapter 12 where Jesus says, look, don't you know how much God clothes the fields and the flowers and he takes care of everything? He'll take care of you too. See, the truth is from Genesis all the way in the beginning, when sin entered in through food and eating what we should not have eaten, shame entered in. 
And we began to create clothing to cover our shame and our nakedness. To put on an image of being somebody other than who we actually are. And we began to hide behind what we wear and what's out here. So as long as I dress appropriately, as, I, as long as I look the way I want you to perceive me, as long as I you know, dress to impress whatever it is, then it'll be okay. And for many of us, our closets reflect this misunderstanding. We have an abundance of clothes that we never wear, but we can't get rid of because someday we might wear them when we lose 35 or 40 pounds, right? We have an abundance of clothing we never wear because it's really worn out and needs to be thrown away, but we have sentimental attachment because, you know, we got it back in high school three decades ago. So last week, we began physically getting rid of things in our life. Not just reorganizing our schedule and reprioritizing our heart. We began to say, what is actual clutter that fills my space and stresses me out? Did anybody this week begin to go through your closet and take anything out? Was it hard for any of you? No? Okay. I will be honest, when I went through my closet, there were some moments of pain, like, ooh, I really look good in this polo. Even though it shrank, and it's like this short now because I'm kind of tall, I don't look that good when my belly's hanging out, but I liked it, and it was hard to let go of. This process of simplifying won't always be easy, and sometimes it will challenge us to simplify things we maybe are not yet comfortable simplifying. And in this process, there's an invitation from Jesus. When we find ourselves attached to something or, or some stuff that he's given us, and we find our attachment to that stuff perhaps is a little stronger than maybe we realized or than maybe we should have, he invites us into a place of conversation. God, why do I care so much about this shirt or these ties or these socks that are filled with holes? Why do I care so much about this stuff that isn't that important? And sometimes it can reveal wounds from childhood where we didn't have much. And sometimes it reveals a sense of fear that we're afraid, what if I lose it in the future? And sometimes it reveals something else. But all of it is a grace-filled invitation to let Jesus speak into those places that hurt or that maybe we've avoided Today, as we continue the practice of simplicity, we continue with that very same goal in mind. But this time, not just looking at our closets and our wardrobe, how do we look at everything we own or possess, all of our stuff, and begin to say, God, what of my stuff is distracting you or distracting me from you? Today, as we simplify, we're going to look not just at our physical stuff, but at this little thing that many of us always wish we had just a little bit more, money. Anybody in here wish you had a little bit more money? Okay, the rest of you are lying, all right? I think every one of us wishes we had a little more, and there's nothing wrong with wanting a little more, but the problem is we can be so consumed with wanting a little more, we forget what we already have. And we can live in a space that is so cluttered we don't actually get to enjoy it. And we think we need all those things. 
My wife and I are preparing to move, and so we've begun to try to get rid of stuff. And we had a, have a big desk in the basement. And I mean, the desk is probably like this long, maybe a little longer. It's an L shape. It's this lovely desk. And I think it's great because it's like this deep, so you can have everything you could ever imagine on it. And it was just stacked so high with stuff that we couldn't even sit down and use the desk. And my wife rightly assumed most of the stuff was mine. And she said, I want you to go through the stuff and clean it out. I confess I have not yet gotten there. But she beat me to the punch. She started the process. She was going to put all of my stuff in piles on the desk and take care of all of her stuff. And something wonderful happened. For perhaps the first time in my marriage, she was wrong. <laughs> Most of what was on that desk was hers though there was still plenty of mine I need to get to. But do you have that space in your house where there's just so much piled up or cluttered you can't actually get to it? I don't know if you have this here in the South, but in Nebraska, in the Midwest, every house you go into has that one drawer, the junk drawer, and literally you could pull a kitchen sink out of the drawer and still find more things in there. Like everything, like where does this go? I don't know, throw it in the drawer, put it in the drawer. And you don't know what's in the drawer and you save it because someday you might need it. But because you don't know what's in the drawer, you end up going and buying it anyway, right? And now you're like, why do I have seven lighters? I don't know, put it in the drawer. We have this attachment to our stuff that distracts us from connecting with Jesus. So to look at our stuff and to begin to simplify, we're going to look today at 1 Timothy chapter 6. Now before we dive too deep in this, if you want to follow along, it's on page 1,236 in the blue Bibles in your pews or upstairs along the edges, all right? You can use your own Bible or your phone to follow along. Before we get too deep into this, let me just again reiterate the invitation to eliminate stuff or to reorganize your money or to change your financial priorities is not something you must do in order to be welcomed in this church or to belong with Jesus or to be filled with faith. See, sometimes when it comes to money in church, we get super uncomfortable like, oh no, here comes the pastor. He's going to guilt me into why aren't you giving more money? I have zero intention to shake your pockets out today. Why? Because many of you are grown adults and I can't lift you. I'm not that strong, okay? No, Jesus often talks about money and scriptures often talk about money. So today as we discuss our money and our stuff, it's purely to look at this view that scripture portrays and say, are we living consistent with what Jesus said and did and lived or not? You ready for it? Here in Timothy, Paul is writing a letter to a young pastor, a pastor who was like a son to him, a pastor who Paul had personally invested in and poured into, and throughout the whole letter, he gives him all kinds of encouragement, and he says, look, this is how you should live, this is how like, the church should be, this is what pastors should be like, and leaders should be like, and women, this is how you should be, and he's really encouraging Timothy, this is what life with God looks like. And right before this part in chapter 6, he warns that there are plenty of people who have fallen away from this 
They've begun to chase other things, to build up silly myths and stories and expectations of how you should or should not live as like prerequisites to following Jesus. And Paul, trying to encourage Timothy at the very end of his letter, says this, beginning in verse 3. Chapter 6, verse 3. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are deprived in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. You see, for the people that Paul is warning against, they said, if you wish to be godly, you have to do, and they put a whole list of things in place. And if you don't do them, you're not godly. But then there was this flip side of it. They said, it doesn't really matter what we do. As long as we do the right things, we can do anything else we want because God loves us and it's all okay. And so there were some who were getting really, really legalistic and saying, this is the only way or else. And others who were getting to this place of saying, I'm forgiven, I'm freed, it doesn't matter. Paul writes to Timothy, he says, godliness is really important. And godliness is the characteristic of being like God. Now, you and I will never be God. If you try to be God, I'll tell you you're not. If I try to be God, please tell me I'm not. We won't be Him and we won't be like Him in our perfection, but to be like God is to imitate the things we see in Him. To begin to say, I want my life to be transformed like Him. So that when people look at me, they see me, but they also see Him. They see His kindness and His goodness and His grace and His mercy and His justice. They see His generosity. They see His peace. They see all these things, which certainly by myself, you won't see that in me. Godliness and the pursuit of godliness only comes when God Himself is doing the work for us. But then we, in turn, do the work with him. And here's what I mean by that. If I wanted to lose weight, which I do, I would go to a physical trainer, which I can't yet afford, and I would ask them, how do I lose weight? And they would tell me, well, here's some ways you could eat differently, and here's some exercises you could do, and here's some things that would help you lose weight. And if I learned all the knowledge and said, great, now I'll lose weight, and I went and did nothing with it, that knowledge would be wasted on me. It's the same with godliness. The Spirit of God gives us everything we need to become godly. Now, we are righteous, like made perfect in His sight, but by godly, I mean like amongst one another, right? You know people who look and act more like God than you do, or less than you do. And this isn't a comparison. It's not a judgment. It's just a truth. We all need to be transformed. And so godliness is God giving us everything we need to be changed. It's saying, cool, here's your diet plan and your exercise plan. Go and do them. And just like we're practicing this way of Jesus, we practice diets, right? Some days you fail. I ate too many pieces of cheesecake. 
It was delicious, but I'll pay for that at the gym tomorrow. Whoops. Some days we fail because we're just too tired. We don't want to go and do the work. And the goal is not to get it perfect and to always have it right. The goal is to make progress in the direction we're trying to go. He writes, he says, some people see godliness as not important. They've thrown this aside and says, who cares? And the person who teaches that is puffed up, conceited, and understands nothing. They're filled with envy and quarrels and dissension and slander and evil suspicions. Man, I certainly feel like Paul was writing to our day and age. How often are we as the people of God filled with these things? What if we practiced that which would help us push against these things? Verse 8, or verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. Now we're going to next week dive a little more into contentment and how we remain content in our practice of simplicity, but just hear this. He says, look, godliness with contentment is really good for you. You will benefit because we came with nothing and we leave with nothing. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Do you hear the echo of Jesus, right? If you're worried about food and clothing, know that God cares for you. It'll be okay. Look, if we have food and clothing, we'll be okay. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Paul, he pulls no punches. He says, the desire to be rich has led some people to a place of a lot of pain and sorrow. Now, I need to clarify a few things of what he's saying here. The desire to be rich does not mean that being wealthy is evil. We have a cultural idea that comes from our puritanical background that says anybody who has money must have obtained that money through evil, cheating means. They don't deserve it. They haven't earned it. They must be terrible people. And so we counteract that by saying, well, if they just give more money away, then they'll be better people. But the truth of the matter is, throughout Scripture, being wealthy is not by itself inherently good or evil. Money is amoral. Money doesn't care what you do with it. Did you know that? Like you could spend the same money feeding somebody that you spend at the club partying and doing things you shouldn't do, and the money doesn't care. It doesn't change the money one way or the other. Consider a brick. Is a brick moral? Is it good? Is it bad? Well, that all depends. If I use a brick to build a church building or to build a hospital or to build a house for those who don't have one, if I use a brick to do good for others, that brick became good. But if I use that brick to throw it through a window or to hit somebody when they make me mad, that brick then was used for bad and is not good in that moment, right? Money is the same way. And Paul, he writes, a warning to those who desire to be rich. For in doing so, they fall into temptation 
and he uses the language of a snare. They fall into a trap that will get them and will hurt them. See, the problem is when we pursue wealth as our goal, if wealth is the the end all, that's the thing we need, you will never have enough and you will always be afraid of losing it. Always. Adam, he works with uh, people who have lots of money as a trust lawyer at a bank. And he tells me, he says, when the market is great, people call me and complain because it's not good enough for their accounts. And the market is bad, they call me and complain because it's going down and they're going to lose everything. They never just call me to say, hey, thanks for managing it, it's going well. It's always not enough or it's falling too fast. Hmm. The desire for wealth can be dangerous. He says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Not money itself, the love of it. Now, before we go on to how he says we who are rich should live, let me just give this clarifier. It is always, always, always easy to remember that somebody else has more money than you. Is there anybody in here who disagrees with that? I bet in this room there is somebody who has more money than every one of us. Probably more money than every one of us combined. And because of that, because we don't have the most money, it's easy to say, well, I'm not the rich person. And to look at everybody else as the rich person. That's a dangerous game to play. Because just as you will always find somebody with more, you will always find somebody with less. I promise. And if our definition of rich is dependent upon the quantity that we have, we will always be in a dangerous place. Did you know that worldwide, across the entirety of the planet, the average annual income, so 50% of the people around the whole world, make $11,000 a year? 50%. Which means if you make $11,000 in a year, you're at least in the top half of the whole world. Now, I understand that the cost of living is different in different places, and a dollar goes a little further in some places than others. I've been to the gas pump recently. I know that my same gas or tank of gas cost me way more now than it did two years ago. I get that. So this is not an inflation thing. It's not a conversation of the economy. It's just a reality. Half of the world makes less than $11,000 a year. So what is rich? How do we define rich. Well, I would be led to believe the best way to define rich is not to define it at all, but rather to look at our stuff and our money and the things God has given, whether it's two pennies or two billion, I I don't care. And to say, God, why have you given this to me? What do I do with what you've given, big or small? Paul, he continues with this little brief encouragement to Timothy. He says, fight the good faith, hang in there, or fight the good fight, pursue righteousness, do these things. And then in verse 17, he continues with his warnings to the rich. He says this at the end, as for the rich in this present age. So for anybody who has, let me tell them how to live. 
What do you do with that wealth, whatever quantity, to make sure you don't fall into these temptations? As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. He says, look, how do you deal with those who have something? Remind them not to be arrogant, to be humble, to recognize whatever you have, a lot or a little, is a gift given by God. He says, charge them not to be arrogant, nor to place their hope in that wealth. If you have a thriving 401k, don't place your hope in it. Because I don't know what tomorrow will hold for the economy. If you have no 401k, and instead you're like, I don't even know what, those, what that means. Don't place your hope in the fact that someday you'll win the lottery, or you'll get a raise, or you'll have more money later. See, more money will not make life easier. It just makes life different. Now, there are certainly things that more money could help with. Like now I don't have to worry about what I will eat. I will have food. Except, anybody ever tried to go on a date and ask your spouse, where should we eat today? And, and nobody? How many of those conversations go like this? Where do you want to eat today? I don't know. What do you want to eat? I'm not sure. How about you? Uh, what do you think about like tacos? No, I don't really want tacos. Cool. What about Italian? No, I don't really want Italian. What about a burger? No, I don't really want. What do you want? I don't know. See, even when we have the money to buy the food, we'll still wonder what are we going to eat because we don't know. We just have more options before us, which sometimes makes it more difficult. It says, warn them not to place their hopes in the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. See, whatever stuff God has given you, whether it's money in the bank or whether it's a bed to sleep on or a couch to sit on or a desk that's cluttered, whatever it is that God has given you, He's given it to you so that you can enjoy it. But how often does our stuff become less of a source of joy and more a source of, a so a source of stress or anxiety? What if somebody breaks in? Well, I should probably get an alarm system. What if the alarm system's not working? Well, then I should probably also have a gun, right? And we just like pile up all these things for the what if our stuff isn't there. Hmm. Everything is intended for us to enjoy. I was struggling with some of the passages of Jesus when I was younger asking, God, how do I live this life? Because Jesus told this rich man to sell everything. And I was like, how do I sell everything? And I thought I literally needed to have nothing in my name. And in fact, throughout history, there have been some who have simplified their life to such a way that they've chosen voluntarily to own nothing. We usually call these monks or nuns. I wasn't called to go that route but I was wrestling with, what do I do? And a friend of mine said, what if you used everything you own to serve somebody? Said, well, how do I use that? So in my 400-square-foot, one-bedroom apartment, I did something that was, in hindsight, kind of dumb. I got in my car, and I drove around looking for a roommate. And when that didn't work, I stopped at the homeless shelter there where I lived, and I walked into the front desk, and these words came out of my mouth, and afterwards, I was like, well, that was stupid. The words that I spoke in the moment were, is there anybody here looking for a place to live? 
wait, what am I doing here? And so I traded phone numbers with the guy working at the front desk who was about to graduate their program, and we got to talking, and he ended up moving in with me. And we did the sketchiest thing ever. We built a bunk bed. (laughs) There's lots of room for activities, but it was scary, let me tell you. And I lived for two years with this man. Turns out we had gone to high school together, though we weren't friends. And we had crossed paths many times, but our lives had taken us in different directions. And I learned that to use my space to be a blessing to him also came with a burden at times. Like as part of his recovery, he had traded alcohol for coffee and he drank coffee by the gallon. And if he had any coffee left over and he wanted more coffee, he'd just pour it back in the machine and brew new one, new coffee. Yeah, I'm not a coffee snob, but I'm a snob enough to go, no, don't do that to my machine. But my stuff was an opportunity to be a blessing. And in that, I found a great blessing myself. Maybe you have stuff in your house that can be used for others. Like in our culture of more, we think if I need a chainsaw, I should go out and buy one. Why not borrow one? Why do we all have to own a chainsaw? We certainly don't all use one every day, do we? Or maybe there's stuff in your house that you don't use and you could find somebody who needs it and give it away. Maybe as you seek to simplify your stuff, you could commit to saying, I'm going to try to spend less money on new things by buying used things. Because used things often work just the same. I promise. Or maybe I'm going to commit, instead of buying anything, I will find people that I can swap with. I'll give you my coffee pot if in exchange you loan me your chainsaw. Sounds like a plan. But in it all, we can enjoy everything. Paul, he continues, they, being the rich, are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of the life or of that which is truly life. He says, look, be rich in good works. Whether you have a lot of stuff or no stuff, all of us can be rich in good works. Can seek in all things to store up a treasure that lasts, that will never fail. So how do we do this? I believe, personally, that part of the temptation of being rich and the warning against being rich is unless you have a habit and a lifestyle of generosity with nothing, it will be very, very difficult to have a habit and a lifestyle of generosity with everything. See, money doesn't make you anything different. It just makes you more of what you already are. If you're already a kind and peaceful and generous person and you have more money, it'll be really easy to keep being kind and generous with that more money. If you're already stressed and anxious and worried and you get more money, it'll be really, really easy to be all the more stressed and anxious and worried about that money or that stuff. To be rich in good works is to say, who am I now with or without these things? And how do I allow God to change that if it's not godly? So as we practice simplicity, there's a couple of practices I want to leave with, things you can begin to do with your stuff to say, how do I simplify my life? Well, quite honestly, maybe you need to just purge a bunch of junk. Like that junk drawer, empty it out. 
Don't even go through it. Just throw it all away, okay? You probably won't miss any of it. Maybe we need to go through our closets and our garage and all these spaces where we tuck stuff and say, do I need this? Is there a way I can use this to bless somebody else? Is there a way that this is actually just filling me with worry and anxiety? So first, you can begin going through your stuff and saying, what should I get rid of? Maybe you'll find you have stuff that you can sell. Five or ten dollars on Facebook Marketplace adds up to a lot when you sell a whole house full of stuff. Maybe you'll find you have stuff you can bless others with because they're in need of it by giving it to them or loaning it to them or actually going and doing the work with them that they're setting out to do. So first, maybe this week you can begin to look around your house and say, what stuff can I get rid of? Can I part with? Another way to simplify our stuff or our wealth is to begin to say, how do I practice generosity no matter how much money I have right now? And I want to again say this. I know that this last year and a half has been really hard financially for several people. I know that it costs a lot more to buy gas and milk and eggs and things we use all the time. I know that if you have chronic health conditions and medical bills, we live in a country where medicine is ridiculously expensive. And I know that you did not decide to have those health problems and therefore didn't decide to have those health bills. I know all of these things. And so I also know that every one of us, even if we're really, really strapped, can do something to grow in generosity. And also, we can do something to humble ourselves and say, I, I need help. Can you help me learn to find some wiggle room in my budget to pay for these things? Can you help me learn to figure out what to do with this? Every one of us can do something, I promise. So, you can go through stuff. Second, I want to encourage you, what if you began to make a habit of giving away stuff or money on a regular basis? Here's what that looks like. Maybe you set a timeline. Once a week, I want to give one item away. Or maybe every time I buy something new, I'm going to give two things away. Whew, that'd be tricky. Maybe you could say, I'm going to choose to make a habit of regularly giving money to somebody or something that I believe is making a difference. Throughout church history, there's this, been this idea of giving a 10% or a tithe to the church, intended for the purpose of being used to care for those who are needy, to support the work that the church is doing. Perhaps in your practicing simplicity, you could say, I can't give 10%, which is just a suggestion, not a requirement, I promise, but maybe I could start giving something. If not to the church, maybe there's an organization in town. Like, I really believe in the work that they're doing. I think they're excellent in the way they're serving others. I want to see them do it more. Let me contribute something to help on a regular basis. Or perhaps there's a third way, the most challenging way to simplify your life. What if you looked at all of your expenses and all of your life and everything God has given to you, and you put a limit on your lifestyle. Here's what I mean by this. If you're not familiar with John Wesley, he was a, a pastor, kind of the founder of the Methodist Church, um, but he was a very well-known pastor and was a phenomenal man of God. And, and John Wesley 
one day when he had spent all his money on a painting, had no money left to give uh, this money to one of his servants in his house who was wearing this tattered coat and was cold. And he felt convicted. I spent all my money foolishly and now I can't help somebody in need. And he looked at his entire life and everything he was doing and his cost of living. And he was in England, right? So they used the pound and not the dollar. And he said, my lifestyle costs 28 pounds a year. That's my limit. So anything more than 28 pounds a year, I'm going to give away. So that first year he set out to do this, he had an income of 30 pounds. So he gave two away. And over the whole of his life, that was his limit. He only one time increased it due to inflation. So by the end of his life, he was living on 30 pounds a year instead of 28. But by the end of his life, due to book sales and his notoriety as a pastor, he was making 1,400 pounds a year. Millions of dollars in today's terms. And still living on 30 pounds. What would that look like for you to set a limit in your lifestyle, or to spend a season eliminating debt and expenses or changing your habits so that in your life you free up room to practice generosity. I have a friend named Alan. Uh, Alan was sharing with me earlier this year his personal decision to practice simplicity. And knowing the series was coming, I was like, tell me everything. And I sat down for breakfast with him and was so excited. Alan, 35 years ago, started a business with his brother. And having read this passage and others about the dangers of wealth, Alan and his brother, 35 years ago, said, we're going to start this business, and we're not going to be the primary receivers of all the profit from this business. No, we'll take a salary that's proportionate to the role in the business, and then the rest of the money will go right back to the company, and the company will use half, like it's in their bylaws, they have to do this, they wrote this in. Half of the profits will go towards expanding the company, and half of the profits will go towards giving to charitable causes and needs that they see valuable. 35 years ago, just at the start of this company, they set out and they wrote this in their bylaws. And over the course of the last 35 years, this company has grown to be a multi-billion dollar international company. And while he is in the primary chair making decisions, it's not his money. By choice, they said, we will simplify our life so that money goes to others and we'll just receive what we need. And Alan is in this place right now where his life expenses have decreased because his children have grown up and gotten married and moved on. And so now his life expenses have decreased. And this is what he's decided. How do we take a smaller salary so that there's more for somebody else? Wow. What if you and I had that mindset? I don't think I will ever lead a billion-dollar company. Probably not. I don't know that I'd ever lead a million-dollar company. We'll see. Who knows? Probably not. But what if with whatever we had not knowing the future, we said, this is enough, and I will choose to give the rest away? How much would that free us from our fear and our concerns and our anxieties? You and I are invited to have that which is truly life, Jesus. Let's not squander it on stuff. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you.
that you invite us to see every gift you've given, both big and small, as a source of joy. God, everything you've given to us, you've given that we can be a blessing to others, but also be filled with the promise that you have blessed us. You've blessed us in Jesus to have more than enough. Teach us to simplify our hearts and our speech and our pleasure and our clothes and even our stuff. That whatever we have, whatever we lack, we know it can all be for your glory. May we be rich in good works and in service towards others. That we can take hold of that which is truly life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now as we continue our worship this morning, we're going to continue by collecting an offering. We don't physically pass the buckets at the moment, but as you prepare to leave, if you came prepared to give a physical gift with cash or check, you can do so in the popcorn buckets at the back as you exit. If you'd prefer to give online, you can do so at thepointknox.com by clicking the little button in the bottom corner and setting up a gift. And if you heard about tithing, you're like, I don't really know much about that, but you'd like to learn a little more or you'd like to consider uh, trying something new, Something we've done in the past is what we call the 90-day tithe challenge. We believe that when you and I commit to giving generously or giving consistently, God will provide for all of our needs. And so the 90-day tithe challenge is something we've created. If you've never tried this before and you're a little scared, sign up for the 90-day tithe challenge. Consider giving something. And if at the end of 90 days you discover this was all fake and phony and God has in no way, shape, or form made himself known to me in these 90 days, just request it and we will give you 100% of your gift back. Okay? Because we believe that much that when we practice generosity, God provides for our every need. So this QR code here, if you would like to learn more about tithing or the 90-day tithe challenge, just scan that. You can also find it at thepointknox.com support. You can learn more about why we tithe, what that means, and how we do it. If you would like to learn more, we'll be talking a little bit next week about that as well. But uh, however you give and whatever you give, know this. We don't give to get God's love, but because we already have it. Thank you. Now, of course, it seems the Sunday that I accidentally become a little long-winded, uh, you guys have a lot of questions. This might so be a record. It makes sense that you have shorter sermons, so they have fewer questions. I appreciate that. There's actually 11 comments and questions. Ooh. Yeah, political, uh, theological, relational, so... I may save some of these for Point Leftovers, which will be shared later in the week on uh, Facebook, but uh, we'll see how many we can get through, all right? Okay. okay. First one says, For Lent, I've sacrificed social media. However, since giving it up, life has improved significantly, and I'm tempted not to reactivate it. Can it really be a Lenten sacrifice if I continue sacrificing it after Lent? It feels like just a regular change. Yes, it can be. In fact, part of fasting is learning we don't need the thing we were having before. So I would love it if you gave up social media, but then you would not see this point left over. So thanks for answering that one or asking that one. <laughs> This is a great question. It says, when you forgive others, is it necessary that you tell them face-to-face? -face? Only if they've asked for it. If they haven't asked for your forgiveness, they probably don't want it. And by telling them, we'll make things worse. So if they've asked for it, always forgive them verbally. 
I guess this is kind of a comic question. It says, a couple of months ago, you said most Christian music is bad. Why? Because it generally is vague and has very little to do with Jesus. It's a preference. I, and, you know, I think part of it's bad is because if you listen to Christian music, I don't know much about music, but there's like four chords that Christians know how to play, maybe five. And so it's not very artistic. It's often not very well-developed. Usually the lyrics could be just as much substituted with a Taylor Swift song where it's about the person I love and not Jesus, and I'm just kind of left wanting more. So that's why I'm generally not a fan. It's not all bad. Some of it's good. You can like it. I don't have to. It's okay. Yeah. All right, crystal ball time. It says, what will happen to Russia and Ukraine? I hope we don't start World War III. I can tell you exactly what will happen. I don't know. But I do know that one day Jesus will come back and there will be no more wars or violence or suffering or sorrow. And so in the meantime, I, I don't know how it's going to play out, but we can pray for and where possible try to support and encourage as much as possible. Amen. Next question. Does gender identity, sexual orientation really matter that much to God? I genuinely don't understand why that's considered wrong when we're doing what God said to love all people? It's a really, really big question that can never be simply answered, not even in a point leftovers. So it all comes back to, I think, a, a bigger question. What does it mean to be human? Um, and in turn, I, I think of the psalmist where he says, uh, what is man that you are mindful of him? What does it mean to be human? And in turn, what does it mean to have a God who created everything, who cares about us? And I think until we're on the same page discussing that, any conversation about gender identity or any sort of sexual orientation, even heterosexual orientation, is going to be wildly off base. So if you're somebody who's in that category of uh, struggling with your gender identity or maybe you're LGBTQ and you'd like to talk and have conversation, I will gladly meet you for coffee or a drink or lunch anytime to hear more of your story and hear more of why this is so pressing on your heart, okay? Uh, next is love the service. I am someone that uh, likes understanding the larger picture. Is there a version of the Bible that provides context before passages? Commentary, I guess. Yes, there's a, about 350 of them. Uh, no, I actually don't know. There's a lot. Um, I prefer the ESV. You can also find a study Bible. Those are really good because they usually in the notes have like little extra stuff to learn. I have an ESV study Bible. It's like this thick. It's super awesome. So these are two in one. It says country music is often said to be three chords and the truth. <laughs> and the second part of that is, I love this. It says something I once heard, some people are so poor, all they have is money. It's not really a question, but yeah. it's the first statement. And it's already working because the next comment says, do you need a chainsaw? I was given one. And I've never used it. If you need it, it's yours. <laughs> oh. Here's what I've learned about chainsaws. I don't borrow them unless you're going to come with me because I borrowed my father-in-law's chainsaw eight years ago and I put it in my shed and that very night my shed got broken into and it got stolen. And I was like, well... I guess I'm just not going to borrow chainsaws or buy chainsaws or really any of that unless you're going to be there to make sure it goes home with you, all right? Uh, I don't currently need a chainsaw. But. They're willing to lend it if you do. Thank you. When will the next communion class be held and what ages are invited? Unknown. And anybody who would like to learn more about communion and 
if you're a parent with young kids, if you think your kids are mature enough to uh, handle that, then they would be invited to join. The number of candles on the altar is confusing to me. There are only six Sundays in Lent, but seven small candles and one big candle. So could you explain it again? Yes. Here's a little secret. That seventh candle is for Good Friday. So it's not a Sunday, but it's the day he died when he breathed his last. So there's the six weeks plus the Good Friday. Yes. Last comment. I think this may be my favorite. These weren't really difficult, except for the one about gender identity. Most of these have been pretty simple. Thank you. The Ukraine was a little difficult, but... I mean, the answer is, I don't know. Yeah. God, he'll figure it out. All right. So bear with me. This takes, this takes a little bit. It says, earlier this week, I had a chair that I had tried to donate to several organizations, and it wasn't good enough for them. I actually pray, prayed that someone could use the chair. I finally set it by the curb garbage pickup. Ten minutes before the garbage man came, a little man came in a little truck and stopped and picked it up held the pedal down to see if it works. I ran outside and said, sir, the chair works perfectly. It just doesn't look very good. He asked if he could have the chair. He said he needed it for his workshop. I can't tell you what a blessing that was. I'm really trying hard to simplify, but for me, it's going to be tough. I love you, Pastor. Thanks. Hey, sometimes we have stuff that probably needs to be recycled. But you know what? Another man's trash is somebody else's treasure. So even if the organizations you've tried to go won't take your stuff, maybe somebody wants it. Post it on Facebook for free. Free things bring people out of the woodwork like crazy, all right? Is that it? That was a lot, but that's it. Okay. Yep. Whew. Um, I'll just briefly to the Ukraine and Russia and the sexuality. Those are big things, and I often don't have answers. And it's really okay in your faith to have questions without answers. And what we do with those questions and without answers is we seek the Lord through his word, through community, through prayer, and we simply recognize that you and I, as broken people, won't know everything. That's okay. So if you're wrestling with something we talked about or didn't talk about, you'd like to go deeper, please reach out to me. My phone number and email address are both at thepointknox.com. Please reach out to just the church. Sometimes Emily responds to the ones that come to the whole church. Um, there at the point, but we would love to meet with you and um, hear some of these things you're wrestling through. If for no other reason to say you're not alone, it'll be okay. Now, as you go this week, go with this blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he look upon you with favor and give you his peace. Have a wonderful week. Thank you for listening to one of our Sunday morning messages. If this message has made an impact in your life, please let us know. Simply fill out the Contact Us page on thepointknox.com. And if you'd like to be a part of supporting The Point Ministry, simply go to thepointknox.com forward slash support. Don't hesitate to contact us or join us in person every Sunday morning at 1030 a.m. We pray this message has an impact in your life or at least makes it easy for you to connect with God where you are.